1: This is Stephen Hyden, author of Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. One makes you larger. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Toronto, Canada. Muses with your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. The podcast that celebrates the women of rock and roll interviews, stories, and fabulous fun. So grab those backstage passes and let's get to our show.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Muses. We are the podcast that talks about the women, the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, the inspirations, and the lovers in rock and roll music. How are you doing, Shanti? Hey, Lynx. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing all right as well. It's been uh,
2: an interesting, I mean, an interesting couple months, but it's been an intense couple weeks as well. And Uh, It's a lot. There's been like a lot to process.
0: Mm -hmm. That's right. A lot has happened. We are recording this episode on June 8th, and so it's going to come out um, in like three or four days, and we know how much um, difference a day can make. Before we get started on our episode... We just wanted to let everybody know that we didn't release a Patreon episode last week in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and we wanted to leave space both on our feed as well as our Instagram and our social medias to amplify Black voices. So we shared some resources on our page, things to sign for both um, in the States and Canada as well, because that's where we are. We're in Canada. And uh, yeah, so I think it's like important to know because I don't think it does just go without saying, right? Instead of just jumping into the episode and not addressing anything because it doesn't just go without saying. It's important to say that we stand in solidarity with the protests, Black Lives Matter, and we condemn police brutality. Absolutely. So, So we are in this for the long run. And we are committed to continuing this fight against racism and being anti-racist while we're learning and taking action um, to achieve to achieve structural change. And um, yeah, I mean, we're committed to growing, even if that means fucking up. And this includes examining our own racial indoctrinations and developing an understanding of what we've done, both personally and culturally, to oppress BIPOC in our society. So Lynx and I are in a group with our friends with seven other women and as well as having conversations online with a variety of people and we've been having uncomfortable conversations. And we've been sitting in that. Yeah. Isn't that right Lynx? It's,
2: it's been really great to see everyone be so open to talking about things and learning. So it's been a positive to be a part of these conversations as well.
0: Yeah. And then not just talking to the people like in our bubble, right in our, uh, as they say, echo chamber that agree with us, Mm -hmm. but also having the conversations with people that aren't agreeing with us, or if people are posting things that are questionable, you know, kind of calling them on like intent of things. And yeah, it's, it's, um, I feel like, in this only this week alone you know so much learning it, it, has been going on
2: it does feel i mean it's about time but it's it's just it's so great that it's happening now you know yeah
0: And so we're committed to continuing to signing petitions, donating to causes that directly impact black people in a positive way and people of color, like for the rest of our lives. And, uh, actually before we started recording, I was on Instagram of course, Mm -hmm. and one post uh, just happened to catch me right before we started, uh, talking and it's by, uh, Kendra and her handle is Kendra Amaris. And, uh, They say, after you post and share info, which is important, step away from the Internet and do the real work. The real work is reconstructing you and how you interact with the world. Nobody will see this. You won't get a cookie, but you will become a better citizen. That is enough.
2: That is so well said. Yeah, so it seems like this is the perfect episode to be doing this week as well.
0: Yeah. So I bought this book uh, at the end of April and I began the episode at the beginning of May. It's called Be My Baby, How I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts and Madness or My Life as a Fabulous Ronette by Ronnie Spector. What a fabulous title. I know. And it is important that, you know, we like continue on with this episode as, ske- as scheduled, you know, what Ronnie says about Black artists and her horrific treatment by Phil Spector shows how ongoing structural and systemic racism has been affecting everything in everyday life for Black people and people of color and, of course, in the music industry. Yes. So um, yeah, before we get started with the book, is there anything else? That we maybe missed, and look, if we did and and um, if we missed something or if we maybe like said something and not the right way, happy to be happy to talk about it. I'm happy to have the conversation to, like I said, to kind of like mess up and do better, because <laughs> these conversations aren't easy. Uh, I've never really spoken up publicly against race, so here I am.
2: Yeah. And I completely agree with you. Uh, I'm happy that we're all open and we're open to talk and we're here. And if any of you want to talk to us, we're here.
0: Right. Okay. Well, this book, Lynx, has a foreword by Cher and an introduction by Billy Joel. It's like
2: already perfect.
0: (laughs) So we'll just touch on Billy Joel's um, introduction and how for him, you know, growing up, going to parties, what they'd be listening to was James Brown, Otis Redding, Jackie Wilson. But he said, most of all, it was the girl groups who had the toughest sound of all. Yeah, love it. He said just as soon as that like that drum started with Be My Baby, the whole room would just change. Hmm. He gets a little bit horny about it, but I won't go into that. (laughs) So eventually, Billy Joel would go on to write a song kind of as a tribute to Ronnie and the Ronettes and inspired by Be My Baby. And that song was called Say Goodbye to Hollywood. It was modeled after Ronnie's vocal style and with Phil Spector's recording style, that signature wall of sound. Mm-hmm. He says, and I agree, if Be My Baby was recorded today, it would still be a hit.
2: Absolutely. It's like
0: one of the greatest songs ever. <laughs> Agreed. So Cher, in her foreword, talks about how she and Ronnie both had overprotective and controlling boyfriends. In common and how they came to be friends, and she says that the important thing is that Ronnie survived, and she's still around to tell the tale. Now, when I got this book, um, you know, you look at the cover and the girls are singing and they look amazing, and it's this like pink bubble gummy kind of writing, and it's "Be My Baby," "How I Survived," "Mascara," "Miniskirts and Madness," or "My Life as a Fabulous Ronette," but then you have to look at that word survived. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize like how much she meant survived until I got like a quarter of a way through the book Wow, or less. Like this is a story of survival. Absolutely.
2: Amazing. I'm so excited to
0: hear her story. So Veronica, or Ronnie for short, was born in Spanish Harlem on August 10th, 1943. Her mother, Beatrice Bennett, was black and Cherokee, and her father was white. She had a sister, she has, a sister named Estelle, who would later join her as a Rocket, Ronette. (laughs) And the family grew up between Amsterdam and Broadway, and she says... In a neighborhood that had Chinese laundries, Spanish restaurants, black, white, and yellow, and interracial marriage seemed normal to us.
2: That's great. And that's New York.
0: That's New York. Yeah. Ronnie was subject to bullying... Much of her childhood. One instance is like the time she was at school and a girl asked her if she could touch her hair. Because Ronnie had long straight hair. And one day when she was sitting at her desk, a girl behind her cut off her ponytail. Oh my god. Yeah. So being, you know, her mother being black and Cherokee, her father is white. She never really felt like she fit in into any of those identities Mm -hmm. she grew up playing with many cousins spending lots of time at her grandmother's house she especially liked being at her grandma's house on the weekends because all of the aunts and uncles would go over they all liked to sing dance tell jokes and every weekend they'd set up a little stage at ronnie's grandma's for a little amateur show No one in her family sang or performed professionally, it was something that they did for fun, harmonizing together while they all sang, so Ronnie believes that performing was in her blood. Her father worked in a subway yard all day, but also played the drums and always had dreams to play in a Harlem jazz band. That dream of his never came true, but Ronnie says that he passed on his love of music to her.
2: I love, uh, we have a a, a lot of like father-daughter connections with the muses that we cover as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ronnie recalls a story her mother told her of being on the subway train with Ronnie when Ronnie was 16 months old and she started singing for everyone on the train. She started getting up on the table to perform uh, to her family at age four, and by age eight, she was putting together full-on numbers for the family's weekend shows. Wow. Once, when she was singing a song, she tried to imitate a yodel from a song that she knew, and that was the beginning of the "whoa oh 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 that would become her trademark as a singer.
2: Ah, oh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. An accidental yodel?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Her older sister Estelle would also perform some songs and actually put was put in Star Time, a dancing school that was big in New York in the 1950s. Ronnie begged to also go, but her mother could only afford to send one of them, so Estelle went because she was the older sister. Hmm. But Lynx, do you think that that stopped Ronnie from somehow going? No way it did. It sure didn't. And so Ronnie would go and hang around, stand in the hallway, and sneak over to the doorway when it started and peek through the window. And then make all the dance moves the girls were taught. Wow. Aww. Then she'd memorize it, practice it all week, and her and Estelle would put on the routine, um, show off the routine at the family weekend show.
2: Wow. Oh.
0: As a family unit with Estelle and their parents, they'd have dinner together at the table every night when they were little. And it always seemed to them like their mother was more strict and their dad was more happy-go-lucky and easygoing. They couldn't quite figure out why their mother was so short-tempered with their father and didn't understand until later that he'd had a drinking problem that got worse every year. Oh, So they didn't know about that. All they knew is that their mom and dad weren't getting along as well as they should. So Ronnie remembers some great times that they did have as a family, but when she was 12 years old, her parents split up. Hmm. They didn't ever really hear their parents argue, like they didn't fight loud in front of them. But the girls picked up on the tense looks and harsh words that were spoken in whispers after their parents thought the girls had gone to sleep.
2: Ah man. Yeah.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Ronnie's mother, Beatrice, worked as a waitress, and their father also had a steady income um, as long as he could hold himself together. Hmm. Ronnie felt sorry for her father because he could never realize his dream as a jazz drummer, and she says that instead of accepting his fate or working to change it, he drank, hoping that might help him forget his lost dreams.
2: I, that's, I get that. But mm-hmm. that's
0: tough. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm.
0: It didn't, of course, and his drinking only made him more depressed. Yeah. By cycle. the time he was in junior high, her father was further into his depression. And when he would come home, stumbling home late at night, he was usually a mess. Hmm. At school Ronnie says that a lot of guys Tried to date her And she always felt pretty But she never felt like she fit Into one group She says The black kids never accepted me as one of them The white kids knew I wasn't white And the Spanish kids didn't talk to me Because I didn't speak Spanish (laughs) I had a bit of an identity crisis When I hit puberty I remember I used to sit in the front of the mirror Trying to decide what I was. Let's see now, I think. I've got white eyes, but these are black lips. My ears are they white ears or black ears? She even tried to dye her skin a darker tone one time because she thought it would make her look more like the darker skinned cousins that she had. So she got a kind of, like, tanning lotion. She left it on longer than the bottle recommended. She fell asleep. And the next morning, she says she woke up looking like she had zebra stripes.
2: Oh, poor girl.
0: So Ronnie and Estelle's mother was working at a place called King's Donuts. And the girls would stop by there after school. The real reason why they visited so often is because it is across, from, uh, across the street from the Apollo Theater. Mm-hmm. To Ronnie and Estelle, the Apollo was the most exciting place because, she says, all the biggest black stars came to stay there and there always seems to be the bright lights and big crowds lined up around. And Estelle and I were both naturally drawn to that kind of excitement. (laughs) So Ronnie says that a lot of entertainers can't or don't want to tell you where they got their style from, but that she got hers from someone named Frankie Lyman. That's where she got her voice. She says that if Frankie hadn't made the record, why do fools fall in love? then she wouldn't be sitting there writing the, she wouldn't be sitting there writing this book. Wow. Ronnie was twelve years old when she heard Frankie for the first time and she fell in love. She says, "I couldn't tell if he was black, white, or what. I just knew I loved the boy who was singing that song. Ah, oh, such a good song too. Every night she prayed to God that she would meet him. She did, and it happened through a strange coincidence. So, should we listen to Why Do Fools Fall in Love by Frankie and the Teenagers? Yes, please. Here it is. Ooh. All right. Love that song. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sent you a list of songs before, and it's going to be a great episode for music.
2: It got me in the mood. Like, I was getting real excited listening to them, and yeah.
0: Yep. All right. Said, when she heard that song, her hands got all sweaty, her toes curled up, and she tried to climb right into the radio box. Oh,
2: I know that feeling.
0: Yeah, she like pressed her ear so hard up against the speaker that her grandma would be like, you're going to go deaf. (laughs) So back to meeting Frankie. One day at work, Ronnie's mother was telling another waitress how much Ronnie worshipped Frankie, how he's all she could ever talk about, and how she was dying to meet him. And then the waitress said, Frankie Lyman? Baby, he's sitting right there in your station. And 13 year old Frankie Lyman. No way. Yeah. Ronnie's mother invited Frankie to Ronnie's birthday party and he said he would be there. The day came and Frankie didn't show up, but his brothers did. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) So Ronnie was devastated, but Frankie must have heard about how cute. Uh, she was through his brothers, mm-hmm. and he came around another day and surprised her at home. Aww. Unfortunately, the meeting wasn't Ronnie had hoped for. When he arrived, he sm- she smelled alcohol on his breath. Oh, pretty soon after meeting her, he wanted to kiss her, and she just wasn't comfortable with that. And it's not what she had wanted. No. After turning down his advances, um, she told him to make himself at home and went to the bathroom and locked herself in there.
2: Hmm.
0: He eventually left, and although she was disappointed with the interaction, she still loved his singing. She still played his records and still sang along to all of them because she knew every note by heart. Now, Ronnie doesn't... Go into too much detail About Frankie and his Alcoholism So I think that would be something really interesting To go and look back into his Like life and legacy and Yeah uh, Probably like his treatment and
2: There's a story there for
0: sure Absolutely Yeah uh, yeah, in the music industry Hmm. (sighs) She didn't only listen to Frankie Ronnie also would use a big wooden spoon to sing along with Little Anthony and the Imperials and the Chantelles. The Chantelles? So, yeah, the Chantelles. <laughs> Actually, do you want to listen to a song by the Chantelles? Yes, of course. And it's spelled, like, it spelled like my name C H A N T E L, the Chantelles. So here's a song called Maybe. Man, these groups were amazing. I love these;
2: They're so good. So good.
0: And like, there was like a time in my life where I stupidly thought that like before the Beatles, what was there? Like, hello. Hello. Yeah. Here it is. Okay. So Ronnie would jump on top of her coffee table and not only sing... But imagine that there was an audience, tell them jokes, make dedications, jump off the table, walk along the front of the couch and flirt with every person in the imaginary front row. Practicing. This is something she would eventually do in her live show. Amazing. By the time Ronnie got to high school, she knew that show business was going to be her life. She says that she wanted to be the Marilyn Monroe of Spanish Harlem. Uh, and she wasn't gonna settle for anything less
2: no she wasn't
0: one day a man named bobby Schiffman went into king's donuts and began began flirting with ronnie's mother nothing ever happened between the two of them but beatrice did convince the man to get the girls on stage at the apollo theater because it turns out his family owned it
2: Uh, perfect
0: Ronnie was 14 and had assembled herself, her sister Estelle, cousin Nidra, and two other cousins to work out harmonies and learn songs from the radio. Hmm. It was with this little group that they ended up performing at the Apollo for an amateur night. They actually put their boy cousin up front because they wanted to seem more like Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, but when it came time to sing, he froze. Oh no. (laughs) So actually, the song that they chose was Why Do Fools Fall in Love? And he didn't sing a beat. So, guess what happened? I think our girl took care of it. Ronnie took over and sang as loud as she could. Now, apparently, the audience at the Apollo were a tough crowd and they had been warned ahead of time that people might throw things or people might do or whatever. But as soon as Ronnie started singing, people started clapping.
2: Of course. Her voice is incredible.
0: Mm -hmm. So once they started clapping, she sang louder. And once she sang louder, they started clapping louder. And Ronnie couldn't believe it.
2: She was living her dream.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And um, she couldn't wait until the next time to get back on stage. After that night, she says, there was no questions that it was where I belonged. I love that. Yeah. Ronnie wanted to be popular at school and she was. Estelle was the valedictorian of their class and on the cheerleading squad, and Ronnie wanted to increase her popularity, so she got an after-school job so she could buy clothes. Ronnie, Nadra, and Estelle were the last ones left in their little group um, that had performed at the Apollo, because the other cousins that had been with them uh, had a mother who didn't want her daughters singing rock and roll music. Hmm. So those three girls started taking singing lessons. After that, they started playing bar mitzvahs, and it wasn't glamorous, but it paid. As a name, they called themselves the Darling Sisters for a few gigs, but that was just to make their grandma happy, who wanted them to be like the Andrews sisters. Uh, yeah. And after that, they started calling themselves Ronnie and the Relatives. By 1961, they had been doing these small gigs for about a year, and they wanted to be recognized as the stars that they knew that they were, and that meant making records. They did get a chance to record when they were told that Stu Phillips wanted them to come in and audition for him. After hearing them sing for three minutes, he said he'd give them a shot. In June of 1961, they had their first recording session at Coolpix, which is a subsidiary Help me out here. Subsidiary? Yes, that's it. Of Columbia Pictures. Cool. So now I'm going to read you a little something from the book. Great. All right. We recorded four tracks at this first session. I want a boy and what's so sweet about Sweet 16, the two sides of our first single. And I'm going to quit while I'm ahead in my guiding light, the two songs that eventually came out as our second single. I was only 17 years old, but I tried to handle myself as as professionally as I could once we got into the studio. I made sure to write all the lyrics out by hand on little sheets of paper, which I arranged in a neat stack and placed on a music stand.
2: So cute.
0: Yeah, so she was ready. Oh, I love it. <laughs> when their song came out in August of that summer, they were so excited and they bought a dozen copies of the record for their aunts and uncles. But unfortunately, I Want A Boy went zilch and they were crushed. Aww. The girls didn't give, give up. Um, and they started hanging out at a place called the Peppermint Lounge. Oh, yeah. The Peppermint Lounge was the in place to go in New York. Yeah, it was. Celebrities would go, but it wasn't just for show business people. It attracted everyone from painters to presidents. Since the girls were still underage, they practically needed a disguise to get in. Their aunts taught them to use eyeliner, blush, and lipstick. They stuffed Kleenex in their bras, and they wore matching yellow dresses and teased their hair until it was they were stacked up to the ceiling. hmm <laughs> Ronnie says that they were going to the Peppermint Lounge to be seen, and you weren't going to miss them in these outfits. Smart. Man, they look great. Like, I can't wait to post some photos of these beauties. Absolutely gorgeous.
2: Uh, I'm excited to see them.
0: There was always a line at the Peppermint Lounge, and so they were waiting in line. Every so often, the bouncer would check to see if there were any celebrities waiting in line, and when he saw them standing there with their matching hair and outfits, he figured they must be someone special. The manager of the club came out and said to the girls, What are you doing out here in line? You're already late. Oh, no. Sorry. (laughs) This is good. Oh, Because they just went as, just to go hang out. And now they're, like, being, like, hey, like, you're supposed to be working? Yeah. They didn't go there as performers. They just went there to, like, hang out and, like, schmooze, I guess. So they had been mistaken for a group who had been hired to dance at the club but hadn't showed up.
2: Oh, my God. The
0: or the bouncer assumed that they were them.
2: That's crazy.
0: So the girls didn't correct him and they got up on stage and they danced. Amazing. Ronnie says, we were smart enough to know that when someone opens a door for you, you walk through it. Ah, that is so kick-ass. I love it. <laughs> so Joey D and the Starters was the band that was playing that night. And they knew pretty quickly that the girls were not professional dancers. <laughs> Without missing a beat, they kept on playing. Oh. When they started doing a song that the ladies performed in their act, and the song is Ray Charles's What Did I Say, Ronnie went up to the singer, shook everything she had, and he handed her the microphone like almost as a joke.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, it was no joke to Ronnie. Of course. She took that mic and tore through her version of the song and as she says, brought the house down.
2: Oh my god, it's just like fate. It's absolute fate.
0: At the end of the song, the audience and the band were clapping for her. Do you want to hear some of Ray Charles's What did yes. I think? Absolutely. Here it is. The manager realized that they weren't the dancers he originally thought they were, but he offered them a job on the spot. So they'd come in every night, do a couple of numbers with the starters, and then dance above the crowd on narrow banisters that circled the floor. Ah, that's so cool. They finished at 2 or 3 in the morning, and she'd be doing the same moves she had been doing in her living room, but for (laughs) people. Wow. Ah,
2: that's, like, such a meant-to-be story. It's so crazy.
0: With the exposure they were getting, they figured it would be a good time to change their name. Ronnie's mother pointed out that the Bobettes and the Marvelettes had both had hits recently, so they came up with the Rondettes, since it had a little piece of all of the girls' names in it. They dropped the D, and they became the Ronettes. Which is a hell of a name. Yeah. And yeah, it is a little piece of all of their names. Okay. Let's go. Right after... Okay, I'm going to read a little something. Okay. Ronnie says, Right after we got hired at the Peppermint Lounge, Columbia Pictures came down there to make Hey, Let's Twist, a teenage dance movie that starred Joey D and the Starlighters. We were thrilled, of course, because we thought this would be our big break, too. The Starlighters loved us so much that Joey D. and David Brigatti wanted the three of us to play their girlfriends in the movie. We even went down to the set to meet a casting director, but he took one look at our complexions and walked away. Wow. We can't use them, he told Joey D. They're too light to play black girls and too dark to play white girls. The audience wouldn't know if they were supposed to be white or black. Wow. We were heartbroken, of course. Losing our chance at movie stardom was devastating, especially after the flop of our first record, and we sank pretty low for a few weeks. We still went down to watch the filming, but it killed us to see the white actresses they'd hired to play the Starlighters' girlfriends. The closest we got to being in the movie was when we played dancers in a crowd scene, and that's where we stayed in the crowd. Nidra, Estelle, and I finally went to see the movie the day it opened, but it wasn't much fun. While all the other kids in the theater laughed and ate popcorn, the three of us just sat in the last row of the balcony and got depressed. We were probably probably the only girls in New York who cried all the way through, hey, let's twist. Oh, wow. That's awful. I mean, let's just sit with that for a second, right? Yeah,
2: seriously, wow.
0: So Murray, the K. Kaufman, a DJ who could make a record, go to number one faster than anyone else in the country, and booked acts for a rock and roll show he staged at the Fox Theater in Brooklyn.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, he invited the Ronettes to play. Nice. So Ronnie says that for $2.50, you could see at least a dozen acts, top names in rock and roll from Stevie Wonder to Bobby Lee to The Temptations. And so they were first on the bill in the spring of 1962. At first, they were used as backup singers, but they eventually got to do a few songs on their own. Hmm. The audience was really responding to their look, which they wanted, to, which they wanted um, as to be seen larger than life. Thick eyeliner, teased hair, tight skirts, and that showed more and more leg, especially when they started cutting slits in the sides. <laughs> and this really made an impact. Marie started, so even, you know, Ronnie would even say to people who questioned her that she was fine to use her sexuality. Like, it empowered her.
2: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought that was great, you know?
2: Ronnie always knew what she wanted and she knew what she was comfortable with, it sounds like, and mm-hmm.
0: she's awesome. So Murray started using the Ronettes on his radio show every night. He taped them doing little promos, sketches, and for Ronnie, it was a bummer to go back to high school after all these shows.
2: Oh my god, I
0: bet. Uh, one last thing about how amazing the Brooklyn Fox was is that Ronnie found a playbill from 1964, and the acts on that bill that night included the Shangri Las, Marvin Gaye, The Miracles, The Supremes, The Contours, The Temptations, The Searchers, Jay and the Americans, and The New Beats. Oh my
2: god, and that's
0: one night. Oh and my god, that's crazy. whenever. She says that whenever they'd run into Stevie Wonder, he'd tell them that they looked so great in those red dresses. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. In 1963, the Ronettes were on the hunt for the right producer. All right. So this is the part of the story where... Things get... We're going to go up and then we're going to go down. All right. The Ronettes were on the hunt for the right producer a producer who knew how to use their voices that wrote songs that would work for their sound and be smart enough to choose songs um, that did work for their sound. Their new year's resolution was to get a new producer and they had their sights set on Phil Spector. In 1963, Phil Spector was already a legend and by the age of 21 was already a millionaire. Wow. Yeah. He'd already produced some incredible records. They thought about how they could get a hold of him and decided to just call his record company. Since Estelle was the valedictorian, she called, and when the secretary answered, she asked to speak to Mr. Specter, and she got through. Wow. Not only that, he invited them to um to the studio the following night. Hmm. It wasn't until later that he kind of let it slip that he had seen them at the Brooklyn Fox many times and had known exactly who they were the whole time.
2: Ah interesting.
0: Ronnie describes Phil at the age of 22 as a real little guy who already had a receding hairline and almost no chin.
2: (laughs) It's true that's exactly what it looks like.
0: (laughs) Yeah and like He knew it. He was really self-conscious and he was, like, constantly wearing toupees and wigs. And, um... Yeah, he's so... uh, He was just a real piece of shit. Okay. (laughs) But Ronnie says he had great eyes. She thought he was adorable. So that night, he sat at the piano, they sang, they went for sandwiches in his limo, and Ronnie says that... She really liked him from the very first day that she met him. Even her mother thought Phil was charming and funny. Hmm. Phil had told Beatrice that the other two girls were all right, but it was Ronnie's voice that he wanted. Um, But Beatrice told him that they came together. They were a package deal, so take them all or you can't have any. And so after that, there wasn't any further discussion about breaking up the group. Hmm. The Ronettes were signed with Phil in, with Phil Spector in March of 1963. They rehearsed every night of the week, and he was obsessed with them. Then he would send the other two girls home because he wanted to just work with Ronnie on her vocals, and it was during that time that their romance began. Of course. So... Even though he's a piece of shit and I, ha- I hate him, let's talk about what made him such a legendary producer. Ronnie explains that he had a musical fluency. He could play any instrument and show, you know, any of the session musicians on their own instruments exactly what he wanted. He had control in the studio and was hyper aware of of the detail and of course he built that very famous wall of sound that many musicians would try to recreate or have him do or would like ask her about for years after that
2: yeah
0: so this is what ronnie says even before we had a hit record we had a hard core of fans who followed us from show to show, and for some reason, a lot of them seemed to be gay men or lesbians. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was because we were half-breeds and the gay crowd sensed that the Ronettes were outsiders just like they were. Whatever the reason, there was something about our style that spoke to a lot of gay people because they've always been there for us. Even today, I meet gay guys who saw the Ronettes at the Café Wa, or the Bazaar in the village, and they can still name every song we did at a show that happened 25 years ago. Wow. They really have devoted, loving fans. Yeah. Before Be My Baby came out, their fans could only see them at live shows. So as they geared up to record, there was one incident where Ronnie visited Phil's penthouse. And um, since she had never been in a penthouse before, she was poking around out of curiosity and found a room with women's shoes scattered all around them. <laughs> okay. This is where she to see that other side of Phil. He kind of yelled at her for snooping, turned pink, and said they were his sister's. Were she they his sisters? W- no. <laughs> she was young and naive, and she believed him. Aww. Ronnie and the Ronettes went to California to record Be My Baby. One part of the recording process was having background voices. For a lot of what Phil recorded, he wanted to amplify the sound, and if you happened to be in the studio and could carry a tune, he'd have you sing Backup. One of the young backup singers that happened to be there for Be My Baby was none other than a gawky teenager named Cher.
2: Oh, nice.
0: (laughs) Cher and Ronnie hit it off immediately. They were about the same age. They both had stars in their eyes. They traded eyeliner and gossip and would soon find out that they did have a lot more in common than just that. Yeah, they did. Be My Baby hit the charts in the last week of August 1963, and after that, Ronnie says, the thrills just kept getting bigger. For the first time at the Brooklyn Fox, they weren't just that and special guests on the marquee. It was their name up there in the lights as the headliners. Be My Baby hit number one on the Cashbox 100 and went number two on Billboard. It was a huge hit. They got a check for $1,000 each in royalties, and to show how young Ronnie was, she just like handed it over to her mom for safekeeping. Mm. Weirdly, though, even though Phil was the millionaire, he'd take the girls out for pie and coffee and make them pay because all he had in his wallet was $100 bills and the restaurant couldn't break that. Ugh, what an ass. <laughs> Other times, the girls would have to take the subway home because they gave all their money to Phil f- for him to take a cab home. No. Uh. But by the fall of 1963 Ronnie's dreams were coming true And should we play Be My Baby right now? Let's do it You know it, you love it But here it is All right. In that year, the Ronettes appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand and people from all over the world wanted to interview them. Ronnie says that her family got a little weird after they made it big, kind of like how the kids in high school reacted. Hmm. But their father was proud of them and tried his best to attend some shows. Ronnie says that their father died of alcohol related issues in 1978. He never realized his dreams as a jazz musician, but he lived long enough to see his daughters sing rock and roll. And Ronnie thinks that in a small way that gave him some peace. I'm sure it did. So speaking of issues with addiction and alcoholism, Ronnie ran into Frankie Lyman after the Ronettes had had their hit. Mm -hmm. Frankie told Ronnie that he loved their record and was like, where did you get that voice from? Like from you, uh-huh. from you. Um, but unfortunately, at the age of twenty, Frankie was considered washed up. And as they continued to talk, he got more intoxicated. He tried to take her shirt off, and she had to have someone come and remove him. Wow. Phil would do weird things like fly Ronnie out places to record, but the other girls had to be driven up in vehicles, which would sometimes take days. Phil started to show early on that he was doing things to try to separate Ronnie from the other Ronettes and from her family, from her friends. It would become more apparent as the days and years went on. Yeah. Ronnie talks about um, President Kennedy being shot before the Phil Spector Christmas album was released, and so no one wanted to listen to music because they were all too depressed. She mm-hmm. said, though, that that all changed in 1964 when, thank God, four long-haired English guys finally got them to go back into the record stores. <laughs> I wonder who. We're talking about <laughs> the Beatles. <singles. laughs> <laughs> all right so the ronettes went to england for their first british tour in january of 1964 the rolling stones were their opening act oh the my rolling God. Were opening for the ronettes wow and since they were just starting out the ronettes had no idea what kind of crowd would show up and like the rolling stones were just showing were just starting so they didn't know but the ronettes got standing ovations every night they played the british fans liked their music even more than the kids back home Oh, cool. One of those nights pretty soon into their trip, they went to a party where George, John and Ringo were, were They were there already before the girls got there.
2: Nice.
0: The Beatles hadn't been to America yet, so the Ronettes didn't really know the Beatles music, but they certainly knew who they were. The boys um, from the Beatles went up to the Ronettes and introduced themselves as being huge fans of their music. I love it. <laughs>
2: I know. I'm just like imagining the scene. It's
0: so cute. I know. George said, you've got the greatest voice. We loved it the first time we heard you. And John said, you were great. Just fucking great. <laughs> they all hit it off. And the boys told them how much they liked The Ronettes look and asked them to teach them all of the American dances. So they showed them the pony, the nitty gritty. And it didn't take long for Ronnie to figure out that John liked her and Estelle was getting the same signals from George. So at the party, Ronnie and John found a quiet room in the house to talk. But that was after they found Estelle and George um, had been doing the same thing. (laughs) But oh. awesome! It's so good. It's so good. So talk they did, but then John leaned over and kissed him, kissed her. <laughs> Before things started getting like really hot and heavy, Ronnie did stop things because, um, she was thinking about Phil.
2: Oh my god! Yeah. What? I we bet you she like regrets uh,
0: Officially dating, they just had like a little romance at that time. They hadn't slept together or anything, but she was pretty committed to him. In a, in, a, in a big way obviously they went back to the party and Estelle and Ronnie went out on a few more double dates with John and George before they left London that's cute so during their co- cross-country tour of England with the Rolling Stones Ronnie says that no matter what they did the guys in the band seemed to have not be warming up to them at the beginning <laughs> weird they would do a show and then go looking for the guys and then the guys had already left so after three days of this the ronettes found out what was really happening they found out like through somebody who was working with the stones mm-hmm. um, that the rolling stones were actually huge fans of the ronettes and they would have loved to talk to them but they had gotten a telegram before the tour started from phil no that forbade them from fraternizing with the Ronettes. Wow. They weren't supposed to speak to the Ronettes before or after a show, or else there would have been dire consequences.
2: Oh, He had his grip on them so tight.
0: But Ronnie sent a message to the Rolling Stones and said that if they didn't start talking to them, then there would be... Consequences from (laughs) home So the boys got the Message and that night they found out it was Nidra's birthday and they brought her a Cake and saying happy birthday So Ronnie says that it Was the beginning of a friendship that would Last for years
2: Yeah that's great
0: yeah, so they also hung out with the Beatles, um, you know, George and John a little bit more, going over to George's house for breakfast one morning, realizing he didn't have anything fresh to eat, so they opened up all the canned food and had a feast. <laughs> Phil showed up um, in England at the end of February, and Ronnie was happy, but she knew she wouldn't have as much fun because Phil didn't like going out. He also didn't like the girls spending lots of time with the Beatles. The Beatles were leaving to start their first U.S. tour, and John asked Ronnie if she wanted to fly back with them on their chartered jet. She didn't have the nerve to ask Phil, so she asked her mom to do it. So Beatrice said to Phil that it might be a good publicity if the girls went back on the jet with the Beatles. Oh, smart. But we're talking about that like first time that the Beatles like oh yeah, landed. That's down, right. 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 That's right. That's
2: right. Yeah. So
0: Phil wasn't having any of it. He's like, I already bought their tickets. But guess what?
2: What?
1: The
0: Beatles hit America <sighs> when the Fab 4 landed at JFK on February 7th, 1964, just a few days after the Ronettes returned from England. They watched on TV as the Beatles were greeted by fans holding banners, and they were surprised to see who was with them. When the plane landed and the doors opened, Phil Spector followed the Beatles out of their airplane. Oh, my God. That is correct. So we weren't allowed to fly back with the Beatles, but Phil was.
2: He was really making a point there.
0: Yeah, and that's when Ronnie realized how badly Phil wanted to be a star himself. Yeah. So John continued to try and have a relationship with Ronnie, but she says that she realized that she only liked him as a friend and that actually she was in love with Phil. But they remained friends, and whenever they were in New York, John and George called up Ronnie and Estelle, and they take them out to Harlem for delicious food and, you know, a place where they could all eat in peace because the Beatles were no big deal in Harlem. <laughs> okay, so links you asked me if she talks about Keith Richards in the book.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: She actually doesn't.
2: Interesting.
0: But I found an article that says Richards and Spectre had a passionate romance when his group and her group toured together in 1964. Spectre, who was unmarried at the time and going by her maiden name, Ronnie Bennett, was one of Richards's first loves, he says in his autobiography, Life.
2: Yes, I remember him saying something like that. That's why I was
0: so surprised. So God. Richard says in in the book, "The first time I went to heaven was when I awoke with Ronnie Bennett asleep with a smile on her face." Oh. We were kids. It doesn't get any better than that. Oh. Yeah. yeah.
2: It left an impression on him at least. That's for
0: sure. And they yeah, the article was like the 40-year love affair with like Ronnie and Keith. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. All right, so Ronnie was 20 years old And her and Phil became boyfriend and girlfriend And imagine at that time your boyfriend Like the millionaire producer Telling you how much he loves you by writing you hit songs Like Be My Baby, Baby I Love You, and Do I Love You (laughs) Yeah Like you can understand, you can understand, For sure. did, you know, absolutely We're yeah. looking at him at, in this lens already of like, we, we know, we know what he did. We know who he is. Mm-hmm. We know he's scum, but at the time, like we can, we can put ourselves there with her and go, yeah, like that makes sense. So they took their relationship to the next level and they started having sex. In 1964, it was their biggest year ever, and the pressure was starting to get to Nija and Estelle. It couldn't have been easy for them to stand in the background while Ronnie was out being the star. Hmm. So Phil's jealousy was increasing. There are countless examples of his rise of abuse towards Ronnie, and one example being when Sonny, like of Sonny and Cher, took the outs out for hamburgers, and like Phil flipped his lid, grabbing Ronnie and yelling obscenities at her. He was jealous of her hanging out with her girlfriends too. One example of this is when she went dancing at the Purple Onion and he um, found that she was there, grabbed her by the arm, and pulled her out of there. Wow. Yeah. Um, Ronnie found out that Phil was married. Oh. Yeah. So do you remember the shoes? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. So Ronnie was terribly upset you know, sick even, but she dealt with it by, like, not addressing it. Hmm. So I'm going to read you something that she wrote. Because if you're thinking, what? Listen to this. I also had my career to think about. It's not like Phil was just an unfaithful lover. He was also my producer. If I put an end to our relationship as lovers, Phil would never record me again. And for a girl singer in the 60s, your producer was your lifeline. Without Phil, it would have been back to Cole Picks for the Ronettes. Or worse, if I said bye-bye to Phil, I would have been saying bye-bye to my career. And I had a sister, a cousin, and lots of other relatives depending on me for a living.
2: Wow, yeah. That makes it hard. Yeah.
0: Ugh. Yeah. All right. Unfortunately, the Ronettes were already on their way out in 1965. There was no reason for this other than Phil.
2: Hmm.
0: He made them stars, and now he wanted Ronnie all to himself.
2: Oh, this is so disgusting. I and hate him.
0: I know, I know. <sighs> And this happened by him refusing to release the records that the Ronettes were making and making excuses for it. Hmm. So those fantastic songs and tracks sat on the shelf for years. He put them out as oldies in the 70s, but as Ronnie says, it didn't do the Ronettes any good in 1965. Wow, yeah. He didn't want to see Ronnie grow. He didn't want to see her thrive, and he was too insecure to keep to have her keep growing. So he tried to reverse the whole process and slow them down, and it fucking worked. So Ronnie was still having a great time doing her live shows with the Ronettes, but Phil, of course, was creeping in this way too. Like, one time they were going to do a large televised performance, and Phil wanted them at rehearsal to give all of their energy and practice exactly like they do it on stage. Like, at the rehearsal, do it exactly like you do it on stage. So they're like, Okay. And that night after they performed, Phil freaked out on Ronnie saying that she was out of control. It wasn't the same as earlier. And she was off key. And she was like, I was just playing to the crowd. Like, how can you, you know? Yeah. So he then banned her from going to the party that night um, and celebrating the show. Uh. He started, yeah. He started isolating her even more with her peers in the recording studio. So no one was ever allowed to be with him when he did his work at like his area, but he didn't want Ronnie hanging out with the other background singers and musicians. So he made her sit with him, like beside him and no one else. And he just like made the excuse that he wanted her there as inspiration. Mm. Ronnie says, if 1965 was a slow year for the Ronettes recording career, 1966 was like death. Ronnie never gave up hope, though. At this time, Phil's other artists were suffering because of his perfectionism. So if he heard one flaw that nobody else in the whole world could hear, he'd refuse to put it out. Hmm. The Beatles were doing a tour of the U.S. and they wanted the Ronettes to be the opening act. Phil was not okay with this. He gave Ronnie an ultimatum, the Beatles or him. He told Ronnie that people wouldn't care who they were and like wouldn't be able to hear them anyways, amongst you know, other bullshit. Like, that was exactly the same time he was planning on recording their next album. Like, and he didn't. Ronnie thought that her choice to stay home was choosing a man who truly loved her more than a million screaming fans could. Aww. The other Ronettes did go on tour with the Beatles and they got someone to replace Ronnie. Oh, wow. No one except the Beatles noticed the switch. Oh, my God. The Beatles weren't happy. This tour did get the Ronettes on the cover of Ebony magazine and Ronnie did get to participate in that. (sighs) Estelle was starting to question Ronnie about the way Phil was treating her, like calling out how Phil was saying... You know, he was thinking he was being romantic by paying the long distance fee for Ronnie to stay up on the phone all night with him. And Estelle was pointing out that he was trying to control her and keep tabs on her. Like, if you keep the phone on all night, he knows where you are and who you're with. Yeah. And Ronnie was kind of like, So what if he is? He loves me enough to call me long distance and to pay that fee. But she didn't realize that Phil's obsessions were becoming very dangerous, you know? They were just, like, compounding little by little by little by little, and... That's how it happened. Just wait. Bonnie began pretty much living with Phil in his mansion in California. The Ronettes toured Germany, and this would be their last. Phil was no longer recording them, and Estelle and Nidra wanted to settle down with their boyfriends to start families. Phil started isolating Ronnie more, cutting her off from friends and family, and Ronnie rarely left the house. One time, Beatrice did show up and told Phil, you got no right keeping Ronnie in this house. But ultimately, Phil won, and Ronnie ended up kind of going back to him. Yeah. It was in 1967 that Ronnie started drinking.
1: Hmm.
0: Phil started building literal walls around their house. Sorry, mansion. She didn't even realize he was doing it until it was too late. She thought his possessiveness was a way of showing how much he loved her. She says that she gave up her independence to him. And once she did that, it was hard to draw the line after. Hmm. The only other person she ever saw was Phil's secretary, Gloria Minio. One time, Barbara picked her up and brought her to Phil's office, which she'd never been to, and inside the walls were completely plastered with photos of Ronnie. She said that she didn't even recognize the girl in those photos, full of life, happiness, and energy. It was like she died, and standing in her place was a bored Beverly Hills wife housewife, even though Ronnie wasn't even legally that yet. Wow, yeah. Ronnie told Phil that she missed her family. And that she wanted to go back to New York, not just for a visit, but for good. She missed the noise. She missed the people. So Phil proposed. Uh, Ronnie was hopeful that things would be different and life would be better once they started a family. But things started getting really fucked up. Oh man. So, this is what she imagined and I'm going to read what she says, what she what she hoped for. Once we got back on top, we'd be the king and queen of rock and roll and our life would be one never-ending party Elvis and the Beatles and all the stars from late late show would drop by the mansion just to be around us and Phil would never be jealous when John Lennon or Mick Jagger walked in because he was he would know that I was his wife now pledge only to him forever and ever Mm -hmm. and even after the guests all went home our mansion would still ring out with the laughter of our little children two girls and a boy maybe more in my fantasy marriage, I'd have the greatest little family to love me and to play with me and keep me from ever getting lonely again. That was my fantasy. The reality wasn't so good. It never is, of course. After the honeymoon ends, most married people discover they have to settle for less than their dreams. But I didn't even have to wait for the honeymoon to end. Things were already getting weird for me a week before the wedding. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Ronnie and Phil were married in a small ceremony in Beverly Hills on April 14th, 1968. Phil's behavior became more volatile. He became scarier and Ronnie often feared for her life. Ronnie began drinking more because she was in so much pain, so lonely. She hit it at first. Um, They began trying to make a baby and they couldn't. Ronnie was tested like crazy for infertility issues, and they didn't ever suspect that the problem could have been Phil. Of course. course. Yeah. Ronnie wasn't even allowed outside anymore, not even to go swimming in her own pool because Phil was worried that one of the, and I quote, manservants might see her. Wow. Ronnie was just on the brink of turning 25. When she did turn 25, Phil bought her a car for her birthday, which felt at first like a little piece of freedom. He was brainwashing her, giving her this car, was even monogrammed with his name. This sick fuck even made a life-sized inflatable Phil doll that (laughs) that she had to drive around with in her passenger seat so people thought he was with her the whole time.
2: That is fucking
0: psychotic. Phil wanted people to think he was an eccentric genius. He wanted reporters to look at him and see his crazy big dogs and mansion and write about him in that way. Ronnie says that he got caught up in his own craziness, and after a while, even Phil couldn't tell where the act ended and real life began. Wow. After the walls were built up around the mansion, the bars on the windows were installed. (sighs) Ronnie says that their home felt like a maximum security prison. Speaking of prison, <laughs> Phil Spector is in prison right now.
2: Yes, he is.
0: Which, okay, there you go, buddy. <laughs> you built a prison, and now now you're in one. You're in one. So no one was allowed to open a door until they checked with Phil. Okay, nobody was allowed to open a door until they checked with Phil
2: that is crazy
0: he said he did all this to keep people out but we know he was doing it to keep ronnie in if phil didn't think that ronnie had a good enough reason to leave the house he'd scream at her to the point where she just stopped trying to leave
2: Hmm.
0: ronnie was in that house for a total of five years she would go on drinking sprees she says that he never physically hurt her, but as we can see, the psychological and mental abuse were immense.
2: Absolutely.
0: I don't want to go into much more of how, you know, yeah. uh, I Don't you know, this is...
2: It, there's a lot of let's it. Let's
0: talk, let's, yeah, let's start talking about her survival, but the last kind of few things I'll say is Phil hired a woman to look after Ronnie, who essentially kept her sedated. Wow. It, like got to the point where Ronnie started having seizures because she'd like go out in her car, run into a friend, have a drink, and then the combination of that would would um, get, put her into seizures. Oh, my God. So one day when Ronnie was home watching TV, something that she did very often, it's really how she spent a lot of her time, she saw a commercial for an adoption agency in L.A., and there was this little baby up for adoption, and she figured, well, if we can't have one, then maybe we can adopt. So she went went right down to the adoption agency, and, you know, after they came in and saw their home and all that, pretty soon after – little baby dante came home to live so phil quickly hired a nanny like nurse and so even ronnie's motherly duties were like taken from her she wasn't even allowed to go in the kitchen because somebody was hired to be there right so imagine feeling useless as like a singer a mother yeah a wife like it's terrible So as much as he hated to go out Phil always did celebrate Ronnie's birthday and when August 10th rolled around they went out for a night in 1969 to Las Vegas to see Elvis Presley. Oh nice. Nice. So he was, she said he was making a comeback after doing shitty movies Yeah, and uh, he cared about his stage act and she thought it was a great show and she really wanted to tell him. But when Elvis invited them backstage afterward, Phil hardly let her see him. Of course. His dressing room was pretty full and Phil just left her in the hallway with his bodyguard while Phil went to go see Elvis. But she says... I was standing there, trying to peek through a crack in the dressing room door, when this beautiful young girl pops out and nearly smashes the door in my face. I didn't recognize her at first, but when I saw she was the only girl there wearing even more mascara than I was, I knew she had to be Priscilla Presley. (laughs) Oh, hi, she said, talking like we were old friends. What are you doing out here? Come on in. Elvis is dying to meet you. Aww. She grabbed my hand and led me through the crowd. I could tell she was shy, but Priscilla didn't seem to have any trouble talking to me. You know, she said, I have to tell you, I've always loved the way you look. You are really pretty. Oh, Oh. thank you, I said. I was really touched. I don't know why she was so sweet to me, but I've never forgotten it.
2: That's so cute. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Priscilla. Yeah,
0: so she got to meet Elvis.
2: I love that she put that story in about Priscilla as well.
0: Yeah. One day, Ronnie ran into her friend Bobby, and Bobby was trying to kind of tell her, show her that Phil was controlling her mind and was controlling her body. But, you know, it was Ronnie who couldn't give Phil control over her mind. And she pointed out that Ronnie's drinking was kind of going to be that thing that made her pass over her mind, right? Yeah. And at the time, Ronnie didn't quite understand her friend's concern and just kind of wanted her to mind her own business. But because of Ronnie's drinking, Phil wanted her to go to therapy. And as soon as the therapist realized the kind of relationship that she was in, the therapist suggested that Phil come to the sessions. Hmm. Phil ended up ending the entire thing. And so one day when Phil was yelling at one of the dogs and saying it to it, I will control you Ronnie realized that she had been subject to the same treatment.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
0: In January of 1970, the Beatles asked Phil to go to London to help them to produce Let It Be. Ronnie was happy that this job took him out of the country. This brought back Phil's confidence, and without asking her, Ronnie was signed to Apple Records. When Ronnie was set to record at Abbey Road, she saw George Harrison at the piano. It was a nice reunion, and he wrote a song for her, but unfortunately, it wasn't a good song for Ronnie and it didn't go anywhere. Aww. John arrived as well, but Phil kept Ronnie at his side. She says, my big comeback to Apple Records turned out to be nothing but a joke. My husband produced My Sweet Lord for George Harrison and Instant Karma for John Lennon. But when it came to record me, what did he pick? A song about Indian chicken. <sighs> So it was back to California and life as Mrs. Veronica Spector, wife of Phil. the The song he ended up having her record was called "Tandoori Chicken." Wow! Right. Ugh. So another like in in terms of children. So there was still Dante, and one day Phil came home with two more children. What two boys? Twin boys. Just out of the blue? Yeah, like probably like six years old. Oh, maybe like my. Eight years old. Wow. Yeah. Um, Ronnie started attending rehab and found Alcoholics Anonymous. The more she went to meetings, she learned more about herself. In 1972, Ronnie left Phil for good. Her mom helped her escape on a visit to California. And when she told Phil she was leaving, he said, let's see how far you get now and hid her shoes. So Ronnie's mom stepped in front of her, screaming at Phil, saying, I'll tear that wig right off your skinny. <laughs> I swear I will. And <laughs> pushed Ronnie out the door. And with that, Ronnie and her mother walked out shoeless. Oh, my God. Wow. They had to make an excuse to the staff of, why, of where they were going and what they were doing because I imagine everybody was on strict orders not to let them leave, but they ended up getting out of there. And when they finally got off the property, practically running until they were on Sunset Strip, Ronnie says, it had finally hit me. How funny life can be. I would just spent more than five years living like a millionaire in a 23-bedroom mansion, and I'd felt helpless the whole time. Now I was standing at the corner of Sunset, barefoot and without a penny to my name and i'd never felt stronger in my life oh that's
2: so powerful and amazing oh.
0: a few days later phil was served with divorce papers and he didn't go down easy he continued to threaten ronnie and said so she left and went to new york If you're wondering about the children, unfortunately, Phil had such a hold on them and so many people working for him and all of that money and really used Ronnie's drinking against her. (sighs) And he got custody.
2: I'm not surprised.
0: And when she left, she knew she couldn't scoop them up. And like walk out with them She was kind of like I'll save myself first And I'll come back for them Yeah (sighs) But yeah It it wouldn't be that easy obviously Yeah In 19 Oh So Ronnie started her singing career again Going back on tour And she thought she didn't have to um, Go to LA Since she wasn't under the stress of Phil anymore So Oh so she she thought she didn't have to drink anymore, sorry, because she wasn't under the stress of Phil anymore. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't actually true because she would then use alcohol-, alcohol to calm her nerves because she hadn't performed for so long. But that ended up with her being visibly intoxicated on stage at her shows. Oh, no. In 1973, Alice Cooper asked Ronnie to sing on his Muscle of Love album. Ronnie was happy for the attention and continued to make live appearances in 1973 and 1974. The divorce was finalized in February of 1974. The judge gave Ronnie a small community property settlement plus alimony payments for five years. But to her, Phil came out as the winner because he ended up getting custody. Yeah. She was heartbroken and to keep herself busy, she went on tour. She ended up dating again, and she found a boyfriend. He was one of the, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the devils Dovels? But the guitarist of that band had apparently been in love with her for so long and was too shy to say anything. A little guy in his early 20s, Aww. Stevie Van Zant. Oh, oh my goodness. They ended up having a little romance. Oh. Oh. Yeah, there's actually a really cute picture of them in the book.
2: Oh, my goodness.
0: He's got that same kind of, like, devilish look on his face. Yeah. But he's, like, t- so skinny. <laughs> 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 he's just so cute. And she's so beautiful. And so earlier when you were, like, yeah, like, Steven Van Zandt is, like, a huge fan of uh, those girl groups. I was, like, oh, just wait. He's in <laughs> the sun. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I had no idea. Oh, Oh, I love it. My voice is starting to get hoarse, I'm noticing. But we're wrapping this up. So Um, the last year the Ronettes played, uh, that year the Ronettes played at Madison Square Garden and other shows that were received really well. Ronnie got to see her son Dante occasionally, but to do so she'd have to go to California and she could only see him in a hotel room supervised. He'll hmm. continued to threaten Ronnie, messing with her mind from afar, like saying if she played the Dick Clark show in Vegas, that he'd hired hitmen to kill her as soon as she got on stage. Whoa. In 1975, Ronnie ran into May Pang outside the Dakota. Nice. Because of John Lennon at the time. Yeah. And so May told Ronnie to come in because John would love to see her.
2: I think I've seen pictures of her and john hanging out around that time before
0: Mm -hmm. so ronnie saw john um two years later and he said like for the last time and he said he was a happy housewife or house husband with a brand new baby and not a care in the world and it was john who put ronnie in touch with jimmy iovine hmm It was at this time that Ronnie also met Bruce Springsteen, and together they all recorded a song called You Mean So Much To Me. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Here it is. You Mean So Much To Me by Johnny and the Ashbury Dukes.
1: Childhood song On old time friend I
0: So Mae Pang and Ronnie remained friends, and Mae, who sounds really cool, invited Ronnie to David Bowie's show at Madison Square Garden.
2: Damn.
0: Yeah. Ronnie said that she didn't know a damn thing about David Bowie, but why not? They went to the show, and they were so close to the stage, she says, that David could see her just as well as she could see him. Afterwards, they all went to a restaurant where she met David. He invited her to have dinner with him. And she sat down and ate a meal with David Bowie.
2: One thing led to another. Oh.
0: They made love. Oh. A few times. Oh. They had fun. Oh
2: my God. What's that? Amazing. (laughs) Uh, This keeps getting better.
0: So Ronnie went on tour with Johnny and the Ashbury Dukes, um, the ones that she recorded that song with. And they opened for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And occasionally, Ronnie would get up on stage and sing with Bruce. Hmm. This was around the time that it was suggested to her that she record Say Goodbye to Hollywood, the song that Billy Joel had written inspired by her. So cool. So this is what um, Ronnie has to say about that song. Yeah, Steve said. That's Billy doing Ronnie Spector. When I told him I was going to try and get you to do the song, he was floating on air. He wrote the thing three years ago, but he told me he had you in mind the whole time. Did you ever have one of those days when you just knew that God was smiling on you? Well, he was grinning from ear to ear the day we recorded Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Everything on that record just fell into place. The E Street Band backed me up with little Stevie Van Zandt producing, and that guy really knew how to bring my voice out. Stevie created a sound that was as close to Phil's as anyone ever got, but the record still sounded extremely modern, and I give credit to Bruce's E Street Band for that.
2: Ah, oh, that's so cool. Right? And I love that she found other incredible, talented artists like her to work with again you know it wasn't like she, she didn't need Phil for sure yeah.
0: totally yeah <laughs> one met a man named Johnny Greenfield one of the production stage managers on the show and with him she felt like she was home mm-hmm. this would become her husband Ah. Uh... And so, let's talk about Dante and the twins for a moment. Back in California, it came to everyone's attention once Dante ran away from the house at age 8 that Phil had subjected the boys to the same verbal and mental abuse that Ronnie had suffered. Hmm. Dante went to live with Ronnie, but it was apparent very quickly that Phil had done some very significant damage to him. Oh, man it was very difficult. They had a very kind of strained and difficult time together. And Ronnie was performing a lot and she still hadn't gotten a hold on her drinking. So when Dante went to go visit his grandmother, Phil's mother in California, Dante said that he wanted to stay with his grandmother because he was afraid to go back and live with Ronnie. And so they set it up that that's where Dante would stay.
2: Yeah, wow.
0: Ronnie had hit a rock bottom when she was drinking in bed, spilled the alcohol, and fell asleep with a lit cigarette, causing some of her bed to burn and most of her hair. But she began coming out of a deep hole after that, looking for daylight. Her hair eventually started growing back thicker than ever. Her and Jonathan were married and had two children together, two boys. Ronnie enjoyed her home life with her husband and their two kids in Connecticut, being a mom and recovering. um, And in 1986, she got a call from Eddie Money who wanted to record a song with her. The song was Be My Baby, and once they recorded it, the single went through the roof. The video played on MTV. They sang it everywhere from David Letterman to American Bandstand, and she was a presenter at the American Music Awards and co-hosted an MTV show with Eddie. Amazing. She also put out an album called Unfinished Business.
2: I remember that music video. She... Do you?
0: Should we play the song? Let's do it. Here it is. Ronnie followed Unfinished Business with the critically acclaimed She Talks to Rainbows, a 1999 set produced by her good friend Joey Ramone, who provided support as she recovered from, you know, that traumatic marriage with Phil Spector. Mm -hmm. She continued to tour through the end of the 1990s. In 2003... The original Ronettes sued Phil Spector for withholding royalties he owed them for their songs, winning a $3 million settlement.
2: Ah, so good.
0: Also in that year, 2003, Phil was imprisoned for the murder of the actor Lana Clarkson in his home. Mm-hmm. It hmm was in Phil's home, and um, he's in jail for her murder.
2: Yep, I remember when it happened.
0: Um, In 2007, the Ronettes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In the five decades since Ronnie walked into a recording studio, she's contributed to well over 150 records, including 80 top 40 hits and a handful of singles that are among the greatest records ever made. The biography website in 2014 wrote this about Ronnie. Through her li- though her life has certainly not been perfect, Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes will always be remembered for perfectly capturing the explosive intersection of girl power, teen angst, and social freedom of the 1960s. She still performs and shows no signs of slowing down. Ronnie says I don't do regrets and I ain't bitter as I get older I think maybe everything in life was meant to be the way I look at it I'm still here I'm still singing people still love my voice and I made some great pop records song that people hold in their hearts their whole lives ain't nobody can take that away from me. She is the best, man. And that's the story of Ronnie Spector. Oh, my
2: God. That was so good. What an incredible woman and, like, what an insane story. I'm so glad that she got out of there when she did and was able to rebuild her career and do what she loved so much to do again. And that was so inspiring.
0: Yeah, I mean... The first time I read it, I flew through it. And then typing it up, I enjoyed it so much. Listening to every single artist and piece of music that she mentioned in it was, like, incredible. And, yeah, so that's that's that story of survival. Ronnie Spector fucking
2: awesome that was wild and yeah you picked great music choices this is I think one of my favorite episodes uh, especially for the the music and the story she's just amazing you presented it perfectly thank you for that
0: I think it looks like it's going to be one of our longer episodes that we've ever put out too but how could
2: I leave any of that out exactly like oh what an amazing story
0: well um that's that. That's it for this week, everybody. We hope you liked it. Yes, uh, and uh, we're
2: here. We're we're talking again, so please keep uh
0: keep talking with us too. Okay, and we'll see you next time.
1: Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary, and is part of the Pantheon Family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at R&R Archaeology on Instagram. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.